Thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 162, The Battle of Kharkov. Last time, the great drive to the Baku oil fields was abandoned. But even worse, the situation at Stalingrad, which started out only as a feint to cover the more southern expedition, had de-evolved into a nightmare. But it didn't stop there. Now, Stalin was going after Kharkov, 300 kilometers or 186 miles due east of Kiev, and as such, was sending armies to the north and south of the city to create an envelopment. But an SS Kampfgruppe put together by Obergruppenführer Hauser, the commander of this new SS Panzer Corps, managed to wreck the southern wing, making its way to a location to the southwest of Kharkov. Still, the city that Stalin wanted back was now being threatened from the north. And as experienced as the SS men were, and even with their latest equipment, they couldn't be everywhere at once. No, Hauser knew they needed to pull back to reform the line, but that meant getting the permission of Hitler, the man they swore with their life to serve. So, the request went out from Hauser to Hitler, and the answer came back quickly enough. There would be no retreat under any circumstances. But the more Hauser tried to hold back the T-34s from the northern half of Kharkov, the more he was convinced that the very nature of the new SS divisions was to act in a mobile manner. This static defense gave the advantage to the Soviets. Thus, unable to keep Kharkov in German hands, and not wanting to lose men unnecessarily, Hauser, on his own authority, pulled back his forces to the west of the city. Hitler went ballistic, but Hauser had been right in every way that mattered, militarily. Moreover, he was following the tone set by his commander, Army Group South leader Field Marshal Erich von Manstein. He, viewing the situation overall and dispassionately, realized that the further west they were forced to go, the longer the supply lines of their enemy would be. In other words, the perfect scenario to launch envelopment attacks, cutting the supplies of the enemy, hell, taking the supplies of the enemy, and smashing large armies, as they had at the beginning of Barbarossa. But in order to do all this, Manstein needed large mobile units, like the SS Panzer Corps. It was stupid to have them lined up and fighting like infantrymen behind a barrier. But for Hitler, the war in the East had become about ego and not looking weak. Instead, de Fuhrer wanted Kharkov retaken now, and even flew out to Manstein's headquarters to say so to his face. But Manstein, to his credit, did not buckle, as had so many men before him. He explained what he wanted to do, and that his way would give them a chance to go on the offensive while not losing too many soldiers, besides which retaking Kharkov was a part of his plan. Hitler listened to this reasoning and, fortunately, approved. Manstein's plan was activated on February 19, 1943, building on the success of Hauser just south of Kharkov. Kleist's 1st Panzer Army, with the Viking Division attached, would push north from the southern Ukraine. There, they would smack into the Soviet Tank Corps 
of General Popov. Meanwhile, Hoth's 4th Panzer Army, with the SS Panzer Corps in tow, would push south, starting at a position south of Kharkov. This would leave the Das Reich to push south and hit the Soviets close to Dnipropetrovsk, located about 130 miles or 209 kilometers to the southwest of Kharkov. When this fire was put out, the Das Reich would move to the east and join up with the 48th Panzer Corps, roughly due south from Kharkov. Together, they would push north, and any Soviet forces in between them and Kharkov would be forced into the waiting anti-tank guns of the Liebstandata, itself just below Kharkov. Finally, all these forces would unite, drive north, and clear out Kharkov and its surrounds. The result would hopefully be a major hole torn in the enemy's leading units, which should make the other forces along the line stop so as to not be outflanked, and besides which, if all went well, hundreds of Soviet tanks and tens of thousands of their troops would be destroyed. But at the start of this, Mother Nature decided to remind the Germans of her presence. The temperatures rose a bit, followed by rain, which made all their vehicles sink into the mud. But then the cold returned and rehardened the ground. With that done, the trucks were pulled out and started to move. First, the Toltenkov drove towards Pavlovgrav, about 100 miles or 160 kilometers south of Kharkov. As speed was essential and staying in formation was not, this was a race after all, the division was broken into well-mixed Kampfgruppen, or battle groups. Their job was to race towards Pavlograv, taking bridges and crushing opposition as needed, but never to stop. In this way, they covered 60 miles in two days. When de Fuhrer's 2nd Battalion took the last bridges before Pavlograv on February 21st, near Novomoskov, the rest of the division was able to race ahead. As they approached Pavlograv, the Soviet defenders there were caught unawares and also low on fuel and ammunition, having to fight hard just to get where they were, and they were now awaiting supplies. The next day, February 22nd, the city fell as Stuka's bombed defensive positions and the SS tanks charged in. Then Hoth's 4th Panzer Army arrived from due north. And with that, as the Soviet forces behind them near Dnipropetrovsk was reduced, the gap that had existed in the German line had been repaired. Now it was time for the Das Reich and Totenkopf Division to drive north to annihilate the Soviet forces south of Kharkov. Or rather, these two divisions would drive the enemy into the awaiting guns of the Liebstandata, just south of Kharkov. But not all was perfect in this, thus far, campaign to retake Kharkov. On February 26, as the Totenkopf and Das Reich were driving north, Totenkopf's leader, Eck, was in front of them, actually over their heads, in a Frieseler Stork reconnaissance aircraft. As he got closer to the enemy position, they, in reaction, though this should have never worked, fired up at the plane with small arms fire. But someone got off a lucky shot. The plane came down 
hard, yet the Soviets continued firing at it, probably venting their frustration at the turn of fortune in regards to the nearby fighting. Eck and his crew on board were all dead. Papa Eck was gone, but it has to be admitted that he had transformed his men, former prison camp guards, into a well-heeled, tough fighting force. Max Simon took over, and the drive towards Kharkov was renewed. As the two SS units drove on, the Soviet First Guards Army, in their path, was cut up and put down. Then the Germans made contact with the Soviet force that was serving as the southern part of the encirclement around Kharkov, the Soviet Sixth Army. They were stationed near the town of Yevremovko, about 20 miles or 32 kilometers due south of Kharkov. These men could tell that German forces were all around them, and as such, Moscow sent in reinforcements. But these units, too, would end up trapped by March 3rd. Now, the SS trap was tightened. As usual, Kurt Meyer and his reconnaissance motorcycle battalion got to Yevremovko first, but the locals there had the audacity to fire on his men. When the Soviet troops were pushed north, closer to Kharkov, Meyer returned to this village. He had it raised, the inhabitants executed in retribution. As it was March, the snows were melting even more, the roads becoming obstacles again. Still, the German forces pushed north, ever closer to Kharkov. It was decided that the Army's 48th Panzer Corps would swing around to the east of the city, the SS Panzer Corps to the west of it. They would meet north of Kharkov and begin its proper recapture. As the SS units met little opposition, they were fairly able to race north, and just before them were signs that, one, they were getting closer to the Soviet troops who had just been there, and two, these enemy troops were getting more desperate as they retreated to the east. First, weapons were found abandoned. Then, ammunition containers were thrown down in haste. Next, the Germans drove over enemy blankets and belts, as clearly the men were running and trying to lighten their personal loads. Lastly, as they reached their meet-up point, they saw haversacks and Soviet greatcoats discarded as being too weighty to run properly. By March 9th, Kharkov was surrounded by Wehrmacht and SS units. The plan was to drive into the town from the west and hence push out any enemy units not killed or captured. But then Hauser's pride got in the way. Somehow, and it was never proved who, as impossible as that may sound in a military organization, before the Wehrmacht infantry could move in, for surely there would be house-to-house fighting, the Liebstandarte hit the city from the northwest, while the Das Reich came in from due west. The Totenkopf men came in from the north. When Manstein heard of this, he accused Hauser of ordering an attack and clearly wasting fuel of the SS Panzers. This should have been infantry work. Hauser made excuses, but it was clear to all he was trying to make up for losing the city in the first place. 
Moreover, the ferocity of which the men of the Liebstandata came in swinging made it apparent this was personal for them as well. Still, the trapped Russian soldiers fought bravely and excelled at urban warfare. In reaction, not wanting to take chances, the SS men brought their panzer artillery close to suspected structures and let loose. However, of those enemy troops that survived, they made the Germans pay by throwing satchels full of charges down from above. So the large guns went off again, turning ruined buildings into rubble. Any Soviet troops found alive were killed with a Cossack saber. This up-close and personal fighting went on for four days, but in the end, the various SS columns met in the center of Kharkov. After smiles, shaking hands, and taking pictures, the Dostoyevsky and Totenkov put their own protective ring around the city, most particularly to its east, thus establishing a shield between Kharkov and the River Donets for when, not if, the Soviets came back. This left battalion commander Jochen Piper and his half-tracks to charge north. He would borrow two Tiger tanks from Liebstandata and a company of Panzer IVs. The idea was to charge north in this post-Karkov confusion, but also before spring proper came, and take Belgorod, about 20 miles or 32 kilometers away. Piper covered the distance as fast as the tanks and half-tracks would let him. In fact, he lost a few of the Panzer IVs as a consequence of this. But the dashing paid off. As they approached Belgorod, the Tigers were put in the lead, and when they entered the town, amazingly there was no perimeter, they came upon a Soviet unit manning a 76.2-millimeter anti-tank gun. The problem was, for the Soviets at least, they weren't actually manning the gun, but rather talking to some local girls. The Tiger crews cheered this circumstance, and instead of firing, simply ran over the gun. Only after that do they come upon a few T-34s, but as they were caught by surprise as well, they were quickly silenced. As the Tigers continued through town, when they came out on the opposite side, they stumbled upon hundreds of enemy troops, who, seeing the Tigers, dropped everything and began to run. Belgorod was back in German hands by March 18th, and that victory was secured, for now, by the spring thaw, which made the roads all but impossible. However, the weather worked against the Germans as well. About 50 miles or 80 kilometers to the north of Belgorod, just above the River Donetsk, was Kursk, and that had been Manstein's, per Hitler, larger objective. Moreover, that territory, once held by the Germans, had recently become no man's land, and the invaders wanted to straighten out their line there as well. But between the roads and the men's exhaustion, a pause was going to happen, regardless of the wishes of Berlin. Still, the Battle of Kharkov had been an exceptional German victory. Soviet momentum had been checked. German morale was raised, and a glimpse had been achieved in how to fight the now, obviously, numerical superior Russians. But only if that lesson 
was allowed to sink in. Yet Hitler did not absorb the lesson. He just saw a victory due to the superior German race and his beloved SS troops. The truth was that Manstein had just delivered a master stroke by using mobile, powerful forces to catch the enemy off guard, retake territory, and inflict many more enemy deaths than German losses. The very elements needed in this kind of war. And yet, Hitler's eyes and appreciation, thanks in no small part to Himmler's propaganda, focused on the SS. His Liebstandarte, and of course Sepp Dietrich, who led it, was almost all Hitler could see. Dietrich was given the swords to go with his knight's cross, and told that he would command a new SS Panzer Corps. Hauser, on the other hand, was ignored, as Hitler was still miffed with him for not defending Kharkov to the last man. Romantic, perhaps, but foolhardy, and not a proper use of mobile troops. So the medals were flung out again in the direction of the SS divisions. The Lieb received 14 Knights' Crosses, the Das Reich, 10, and Totenkopf, 5. But this ignored the fact that, after all was said and done, the SS were now short 365 officers and 11,154 men, all killed, wounded, or missing. The obvious question now, of course, was what would come next, after the mudride? How was the war in the East to be conducted? The days of just dashing forward kilometers each day were over. There were too many enemy troops along this new front for that. As it was, Berlin had two options. Like Manstein, some in the OKH wanted to keep this reactive strategy going. Let the Soviets come, even in their large numbers. But as they came west, there would be opportunities to hit them in the flanks, encircle, and eliminate on a massive scale. Yes, giving up territory was the price to be paid for this, but many more Russians than Germans would die in the process, the best of an imperfect situation. The other option was to stand still, hold the line, and look for opportunities. But this negated the advantages of the Tiger tanks and the mobile firepower they could bring to bear. And it advantaged the Soviets, who had more men, and could overwhelm the Germans, who were standing still. But in the end, this option is what Hitler wanted. The idea of losing territory, even temporarily, was anathema to him, even if it served the larger purpose. No, his men would stand and fight, and this strategy is what his men would use when going after the Kursk salient. For that was Hitler's next target. No more Ukrainian territory would be lost. On the contrary, it would be added on to. At least that's how Hitler saw the spring of 1943.